This morning's scripture lesson comes from Matthew 28. It's found on page 989 of the Red Bibles. Uh, Please stand with me to honor God's word. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, I have a test for everyone this morning. Shouldn't be too hard, but I'll tell you, the first service, only about 50% passed. So you can get better than the first service here. Complete this phrase with me. Ready, set, Oh, I think that was about three quarters. Good. All right, you guys beat the first service. But that's a phrase that so many of us know. Let's do it again together. Ready, set, That was 100%. Thank you. This phrase that has just been impressed upon our culture so much that all I have to do is say two words and you can repeat the third word. This is representative of the mindset of our culture. We all want to be ready for the challenge. We all want to be practiced up. When a new issue or challenge comes before us, we go, am I ready or am I not ready? How much time have I had to prepare for this exam that I've got to take? How much time do I have to prepare for this new business venture that I'm about to launch on? How much time do I have to prepare for the new child that's about to enter into our family? We all want to make sure we have ample time to prepare so we can be ready. Then we want to be set We want to be set with resources. We want to be set with people around us. We want to be set for our retirement. We want to have everything ready and set before we're willing to go. It's the mindset of our culture. But the truth we find in Matthew chapter chapter 28, verses 16 through 20 that Tim just read for us, the truth there we read is Jesus does not say, ready, set, go. He simply says, go. I'm always jealous of people that can work with numbers. There was a a test that I recently took. It was one of those leadership personality tests. And the first 10 pages, they were, it was all words. You know, what word most describes you? What word least describes you on this list of four? And I, I can read I understand adjectives, I'm selecting different words, and all of a sudden I turn to page 11, and there it's, it's these number strings. And it would say negative five, positive 12, negative 24, positive 64. What's the next number? I went, I don't know the next number. My brain doesn't work this way. And so I, I actually uh, took a, a picture of the test, which I'm not sure if I was allowed to do or not, after I, after I finished the test, of course. And I brought it to Luke Kincaid, who's our director of middle school ministry. Because I, I get so jealous of Luke because in undergrad, he was an engineering major. So he's good with numbers and he's in ministry and he's good with people. Those are the people I was most jealous of in seminary. It was these second career people. They were all engineers and they'd done 20, 25 years in engineering and now they're studying theology. I'm like, you can do everything. I'm, I'm fairly useless outside of what I currently do. And so I show it to Luke 
and he goes, and I said, look, it says negative five, positive 24, you know, negative eight, 64. What's the next number? He goes, 18. I said, how did you get that? And he tried to explain it to me, and I still couldn't understand it. So I went for some respite at the local friendlies. Get some ice cream with my family. It's a tradition we have every, every Valentine's Day. We always go to friendlies for a little treat after dinner. So I'm sitting there with my family, my children, and I am, I am not exaggerating. I have a picture of it. This is what I was accosted with on the children's placemat. The snowball number jumble. So you see, you have all these different variations of one, two, three, four. I mean, there's like 25 different variations. What's the missing number? And my daughter, Sophia, starts saying, Daddy, can you help me? And she starts drawing out the numbers. I'm like, can I get a fribble, please? Can somebody please bring me a milkshake? Can somebody bring me two scoops of Rocky Road so we can forget about this? I have a prize if anyone can fill in that missing number. It's actually a trick question. Because I couldn't tell you what the answer is anyway, even after I've looked at it for two months. You could have just shouted out three, four, five, I don't know, one, you know, they could've, you could have said anything and I would have given you the prize, but now I'm, I'm keeping it right here. Come up and see me afterwards if you'd like to look, learn more about Galatians. The truth is I'm not good with numbers, but there is one number in the passage that we read this morning that is vitally important to our understanding of what Jesus is saying here at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, what he's saying to the church universal worldwide, and what he's saying to us here this morning as individuals. So would you look with me in our passage, and let's find the one number, and then I'll tell you why it's so important. It's right there in verse 16. What is the number in our passage? 11. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16 Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Let me tell you why that's so important. You see, the ancient world had several numbers that were highly symbolic in their meaning. And when these numbers popped up, the ancients understood what they were all about. And it helped them understand a little bit more of the context of what was attempting to be taught. I'm going to give you three examples of numbers that have meaning in the ancient world. The first one is the number three. The number three symbolized God, the divine, heaven. You see in the Bible there are three visitors that come to Abraham in Genesis 18. The three visitors are symbolic of God himself showing up to see Abraham. The Ark of the Covenant has three sacred objects, a jar of manna, Aaron's uh, flowering staff, And the Ten Commandments, three sacred objects in the ark. Jesus resurrected on the third day. The great worship that takes place around the throne of God is holy, holy, holy. Why don't they just say it once? They say it three times because when you say it three times, it adds to the power of the praise that we are offering to God. Holy, holy, holy. We know God exists in three distinct yet united persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as Trinity. The number four in scripture is symbolic of earth or physical creation. There are four directions, north, south, east, and west. Four great elements, earth, fire, water, and wind. Four seasons, spring, summer, fall, and winter, or in Williamsburg this year, and winter, and winter, and winter. Now let me give you the third number that's very meaningful in the biblical text. And you see this all throughout the Bible. I'll tell you what it is, and then I'll give us a great example from the book of Revelation where it talks about this number. It's the number 12. 
okay? The number 12, interestingly enough, is three times four. I'm good enough with numbers to know that. So the number 12 is three times four. Remember, three is God. Four is the earth or physical creation. So 12 is the union of the holy and the physical. Or when heaven and earth come together. Give you a few examples. 12 stones on the priest's garment. 12 loaves they kept in the temple. This is my favorite. Ezekiel receives the word from the Lord on the 12th day of the 12th month in the 12th year of the Israelites' exile. You see, Ezekiel, a man, receives a word from the Lord, heaven and earth coming together on the 12th day of the 12th month of the 12th year. Let me show you this in the book of Revelation. This is Revelation chapter 21, verses 12 to 17. It's not, uh, it means nothing that it's actually in verse 12. That came later. So next time you get pulled over and you say, I was going 12 miles per hour over the speed limit. It's heaven and earth coming together. No, no, no. You can only take the numbers as far as the Bible lets you take the numbers. We don't need to get all crazy with the numbers, but the Bible does deal with these three numbers. Okay. So look at Revelation chapter 21, and this will come up on the screen, screen for us here. And see, this is the picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, down to earth, heaven and earth being united together. Read these verses with me. It had, a, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city its gates its walls the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in in length and as wide and high as it is long he measured the wall and it was 144 again not good with numbers but that's 12 times 12 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. You see, 12 is this picture of heaven and earth coming together, how God longs to dwell with humankind. And most famously throughout Scripture, you have the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. Of course, God's people would be divided into 12 tribes because God wanted them to be distinct, wanted them to be distinct, wanted everyone who saw them in the ancient world to know this is an image of God here on this earth and how they live distinctly from the customs, morality, and, and mores of the world, 12 tribes of Israel. But by Jesus' day, the 12 tribes have been scattered. We read in Isaiah about the stump of Jesse, that the 12 tribes had been reduced down to a stump. They were nothing like the majestic 12 tribes that were formed as Joshua took the Israelites over the Jordan River and into the promised land. They'd been reduced because of their sin, because of turning their backs on God, because of exile, because of famine. You name it, they went through it. They'd been reduced to a stump. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and picks 12 Disciples, it's a highly symbolic moment. He's making a radical claim that God is coming to restore his relationship with humankind, heaven and earth, God and man coming back together. 
He's making this radical claim and the gospels don't shy away from it. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus talks about the role of the 12 in the future kingdom. He says, you 12 will sit on 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. It was all about the 12. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. It's the wrong number. Jesus is about to send them out into the world. He's about to commission them for ministry and mission to be his people again in the world, to draw all of humankind back into relationship with the Father. And you look, and it's the wrong number. And this would have just jumped off the page. I mean, just jumped right off the page to Jesus's, uh, to Matthew's readers. Matthew is the most Jewish of all four of the Gospels, quotes the Old Testament, puts Jesus' ministry in the context of the ancient Hebrew scriptures. And they're going, no, 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 it cannot be 11. That's the wrong number. It's supposed to be 12. They have a quantity problem. But if you look at verse 17, they have a quality problem as well. As the 11 show up, it says that some worshiped, but some doubted wasn't just a quantity problem. They had a quality of faith problem. They weren't sure if they believed. Remember last week we talked about tinkering with the tomb versus trusting the promise. They weren't all trusting the promise. And then you learn in verse 18, it's not just a quantity problem. It's not just a quality problem. There's a real comprehension problem. Look at verse 18. It says, then Jesus came to them and said, why is that important? Well, the women who were trusting in the promise who were waiting for the resurrection of Jesus. If you go back up to their story, which we preached on last week on Easter Sunday in verse eight, Matthew 28, verse eight, it says, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. Look, read this. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. We've just read about these women coming to Jesus, and now these disciples, they don't understand. They don't understand what's going on. They don't understand what they're supposed to do. And Jesus has to come to them. Quantity problem, quality problem, comprehension problem. But remember, Jesus does not say, ready, set, go. He just says, go. In verse 19, he looks at them and he says, go and make disciples. I know you're not ready. I know you're not said. I know you have the wrong number. I know you have the wrong quality. I know you have the wrong comprehension system. You don't understand it all. But I'm not saying ready, set, go. I'm just saying go. You saw one of the baptism testimonies with John Smethurst. How he said he, he was waiting till he had the right emotions. Waiting till he had the right amount of faith. Waiting to make sure it was just the right time. And finally he said, it's never going to be right at the right time. I thought, that's the sermon right there. It never is the right time. We're never ready. We're never set. But Jesus still tells us to go. There's a quote from a Bible scholar named Dale Bruner. He's a scholar at Fuller Theological Seminary. And I got some of these concepts from a sermon on, uh, by John Ortberg that I listened to. And he quoted uh, Dale Bruner. And I just love this quote. It just jumped off the, off the page when I read it. It says this, the number 11 limps. It's not perfect like 12. 
The church that Jesus sends into the world is 11-ish, imperfect, fallible, inadequate. The church that Jesus sends into the world is 11-ish. It's not ready, it's not set, but Jesus still says, go. So what I wanna do with the time remaining is show you how Jesus resolved the 11-ish issue. It's hard to say. The 11-ish issue for the early church. And let me show you how it, he resolves it for us today. Jesus resolves the 11-ish issue for the early church um, with a man named Saul that becomes the apostle Paul. You see, in the early church, if you go to Acts chapter one, I'm just gonna summarize this for us this morning, but you can go and read through it later. The early church, they knew there needed to be 12. And so they got together before the Holy Spirit came. See, Jesus said, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. But they got together before the Holy Spirit came. They said, let's resolve the, the 11 to 12 issue now. And what they do is they select a man named Matthias to replace Judas. But it's quite fascinating as you read the rest of the book of Acts and even the rest of the New Testament, you never hear Matthias's name again. Why? Well, they made the selection before the Holy Spirit came. And if you go back and you read it closely, Peter is quoting from a psalm that says, you just got to replace Judas. And Peter interprets it and says, you know, we got to replace Judas with somebody that has been here the whole time, from the baptism of John right up until now. So they only have two candidates. They select one of them. And God looks down and says, you cannot even imagine right now the way I'm going to resolve the 11-ish issue that you have. Because there's a man named Saul who right now is persecuting the church. Right now, he is breathing, as the book of Acts chapter eight says, murderous threats against the disciples. You can't even imagine how I'm gonna do it, but I'm gonna appear to him. And one day, he's gonna change his name from Saul to the apostle Paul, because he will give his life to me after I appear to him on the road to Damascus. He will go on to be the greatest witness For all of the church, all throughout Asia Minor, attempting to get the gospel all the way even over to Rome, the center of the known universe at the time, he will write letters that will become the majority of the New Testament, and you can't even believe it right now because you're trying to resolve your 11-ish problems from a human perspective. But I have someone that will complete You're 11 and make them 12. And his name is Saul and he will become Paul. One of the most potent letters that Paul writes is the book of Galatians. And we will be teaching on the book of Galatians over the next seven weeks as we move from the gospel of Matthew to the book of Galatians with this idea of 11 going to 12. Paul is that 12th person that Jesus added to complete the number And he writes this book called Galatians. And I just want to read you a quote about the book of Galatians by Tim Keller, who's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He says this, the book of Galatians is dynamite. Why? Because it brings us face to face with the gospel. It's very common in Christian circles to assume that the gospel is something mainly for non-Christians. We see it as a set of basic ABC doctrines 
that are the way in which someone enters the kingdom of God. We often assume that once we're converted, we don't need to hear or study or understand the gospel. We need more advanced material. But in this short letter, Paul outlines the bombshell truth that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is the only way, excuse me, it is not only the way to enter the kingdom, it is the way to live as part of the kingdom. It is the way Christ transforms people, churches, and communities. Let me ask you this. How could Saul, the persecutor of the church, have written a work such as this? A work that Tim Keller describes as having a bombshell truth about the gospel, the A to Z of the Christian life. How could Saul to Paul have done this? Well, Jesus does not say, ready, set, go to the church. Jesus simply says, go. And if you look at the front of your weekly, you'll see as we study the book of Galatians, we're not only gonna study its content, we're gonna study about its author, Paul. So we can see sort of the anatomy of transformation, transformation with skin on. How does one go from persecutor to apostle, one who is sent out to build the church, one who actually engages Jesus's commission and goes, not ready, not set, but still goes. And I look forward as we finish the gospel of Matthew today to turning to Galatians next week. You see, most of us feel 11-ish this morning. Is that feeling holding you back from getting engaged in what Jesus is doing in the world? Do you have quantity issues in your life? Not enough money, not enough time. Do you have quality issues, doubt, lack of commitment? I'm not strong enough, fast enough, smart enough. Do you have comprehension issues? Is there something you don't understand about Jesus, the Bible, the church that's holding you back from getting engaged in what Jesus is doing in the world. Well, if you feel 11-ish this morning, you're in good company. So did everyone, so did everyone in the Bible who God called into his kingdom work. Abraham felt too old. Jeremiah felt too young. We are all 11-ish this morning. And God still calls us and wants to use us And so the application that I have for all of us today is where in your life have you been saying, I'm not ready, I'm not set, but today I will say yes. And I wanna invite us all back to the annual meeting because I'm gonna be expanding on this idea. I'm gonna pick up this teaching and I'm gonna carry it forward at the annual meeting tonight. Where in your life have you been saying, I'm not ready, I'm not set, but today we will all say yes. Write it down, what is it exactly Because if Paul was how Jesus solved the 11-ish issue for the early church, how does he solve it for us? Look at verse 20 of our passage. After Jesus asked them to go, Jesus says, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. You see, Jesus is the 12th. He's the 12th man. He's the new and better 12th, even better than 12, even better than Paul. And verse 20 teaches us that although we're not ready, we're not set, we can go out in confidence because we're not alone. He's the 12th that completes us, that finishes us, that makes the work that we will engage in imperfectly perfect in the Father's sight to bring about his kingdom in this world. Will you stand and declare this truth together?